from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a filmmaker of both short films and feature works. His films span the gamut from the comical to the macabre. He's joining me today to talk about the artistry of directing and the discipline of production. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Joe Russo. Welcome to the show. Thanks, friends. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining me on this fifth day of February 2023. I was scrolling through Alter one day and came across your short film Midnight Clear and was really impressed with the way you played a game of bait and switch with the plot, as well as the viewer's feelings toward the two parents. And once I did further research, I found that your work is right with psychologically complex intrigue. So I'm really looking forward to getting inside the dark mind of Joe Russo. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. So I wanted to start off with your short films, specifically Midnight Clear. Sure. So in Midnight Clear, we find a scene of a family home on Christmas Eve where the father has decided to have the children open their presents early. And the visibly upset wife is standing by in a daze. The somewhat vague details are just enough to sway the viewer's suspicion of what's happening in one direction. But at the end, you find you are totally mistaken. <laughs> so what were you trying to convey to the viewer by using a sort of bait and switch blame game? Well, it was an interesting time when we made it. We have to go back to 2017. And we were in the middle of Trump's run as president, and there was a lot of global tensions at the time, and there was a lot of threats from some of the other superpowers, and it was kind of all born out of fear from that. And knowing that we wanted to be able to land this poignant thing and show how people could react to a mass tragedy. We wanted to show what two completely different perspectives towards that would look like. And using character drama and their relationships as a way to maybe kind of throw you off the sense a little bit about where we were going gave us that opportunity to explore those things without being right on the nose right away. And 
I've heard it before. And do you think it makes sense for other filmmakers as well as yourself that film, maybe specifically a horror film, kind of reflects what people are afraid of at the time? Yeah, I really do. I'm the producer and frequent co-host of the Postmortem podcast with Mick Garris. I don't know if you've ever listened to it, but uh, Mick is a big subscriber that the best horror movies are dramas first. And I think if you have something to say about the world, politics, society, or just human relationships, horror can be such a great way to reflect those things and really kind of tap into our unconscious fears. So I am a big subscriber to it, but it is something that I kind of came to learn over time. I think if you go back and look at some of my earlier shorts, they were fun, but they didn't necessarily have a lot to say, Mm. so to speak. It was more kind of as I developed more as a screenwriter and really started to think about what I wanted to say with my work, I think that Midnight Clear was probably the first one that really, truly kind of reflected that grasp of that side of the storytelling. And was that cathartic for you and or the audience? I think so. I mean, you know, the fun thing about Midnight Clear is of all of my shorts, it's the one that's had the most life. It launched initially kind of independently on Entertainment Weekly's website in 2017. And then it got picked up by Alter the next year. It got picked up by Cranked Up for distribution. It ended up on Troma, Mm. Troma Now Mm -hmm. for a little bit. And most recently, Alter re-released it, which is where I assume you bumped into it. And it's also playing on Shutter right now. So it's had quite a journey over five years. You know, shorts don't normally end up on all those different platforms unless they do resonate. And I think it does continue resonating. And it was cool to kind of scroll through, because clearly I'm sadomasochistic and a glutton for punishment, scrolling (laughs) through the uh, comments on Alter and seeing that to a high degree, most people were still really moved by Midnight Clear and where it went, what it had to say. And even people who saw it for a second time found that they were still, for lack of a better word, fucked up by it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I watched it for a second time yesterday with my fiance, and she felt so bad afterwards for hating the father. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Kurt did a really good job. I think he really walked the balance between menace and empathy. Mm -hmm. And Jess's emotions are so raw and so real that you completely buy into the red herring that we've set up. Well, conversely, your film Peeping Tom had the same kind of misdirection, but the ending was actually comical. So was the diversion into the comical even further misdirection? And what inspired you to take such an uncharacteristic approach? Uh, You know, I'm trying to stretch my brain back to 13 years ago. Um, (laughs) You know, my philosophy on short films is two things. There's two types of short films. You have a slice of life short film, which is like a glimpse into a character or a world, or in my opinion, you have a punchline short film. For all intents and purposes, I think all of my shorts fall into the punchline short films. We set up a premise and then we have some kind of a payoff, whether it's humor, whether it's scary, whether it's sometimes a mix of both, like I would say with Peeping Tom and Takeout. 
they kind of all function that way. Because I think that's how you can stick the landing with a short film is you can give people a pop and hopefully a pop that they'll remember. And it was just kind of one of those things where myself and the other creatives who were involved, the producers and such, we thought it was just a funny punchline to a joke, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we thought we could really build some kind of fun Hitchcockian tension and suspense in a really short period of time. And really make you think that something horrible was about to happen and then just pull the rug out from under you. And it worked. Yeah, I never thought about that. A short film, you have a short amount of time, obviously. So the harder you hit, the harder you punctuate the climax. It's an interesting tactic. That's kind of how I see them. Because I think where people go wrong with short films is they try to do a full-on character journey mm. in 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then sometimes you get these short films that go on 15, 20, 30 minutes, right? And the budgets get stretched so thin mm. that the movie becomes almost unwatchable because they didn't pool their resources in a smart way. So my thought has always been, keep it shorter, keep it contained, keep the production values high, and instead of trying to do like a full-on character journey, play with expectations, set up essentially a joke, and then throw in a punchline. And even Midnight Clear functions in that same regard. It just happens to have some really weighty drama behind it. I think I found my soundbite for the audiogram. That was some great advice to filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> Once in a while, I say things that are worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of your short film, Takeout, yeah. it was really good. Thank you. Not only because of the story, but the couple has this indescribable, creepy nature <laughs> that makes your skin crawl, even before you know yeah. what they're capable of. Like just, right. you know, first glance, it's just like something really off-putting about these people. What's going on? <laughs> so I was curious to know how you obtained that when you were directing them. What was your direction? What did you tell them you wanted from them to get them to, I don't know if the proper term would be behave or act the way they did? There was a movie that I had them watch specifically, which we were reaching to try to emulate and recreate. And I think we did. It's a Roger Corman produced movie from the 80s called Eating Raul, which might give some hints about where takeout goes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in that movie, you have a couple at the lead who are very off kilter, very strange, kind of borderlining campy. And I thought it would be fun to cast some actors who could also emulate that kind of line. And mm. Bob and Deborah, I thought, were perfect together. I thought they had great chemistry. I thought they were a lot of fun. I thought they really leaned into the horror. And I was very happy with their performances and how they helped me capture and walk a very distinct line between true horror and camp, you know? I think one of my influences growing up, outside of just being an 80s kid and Spielberg and such, a subset of that was Joe Dante's movies. When I think about Gremlins and The Burbs and things like that, and they kind of walk the line between drama and comedy, and that's kind of where I wanted these performances to live. And I think it makes the movie more fun for it. But I will tell you a funny little anecdote about it. My now writing partner, uh, he was not on set the 
day we shot the dining room climax of Takeout. And his longtime sound engineer was. And apparently he was texting him and saying, oh my God, you're not going to believe <laughs> what Joe is doing <laughs> to your screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> he was convinced that it wasn't working, just watching what was happening. But I sat back and I knew I was getting exactly what I wanted and exactly what I needed. So once Chris actually saw the end product, I think he realized I did know what I was doing and he was really, really happy with the end results. So we got a fun mix. Okay. Well, I want to ask, I don't know if you can do it without revealing a spoiler though, so don't reveal any spoilers, but was the way that you guys originally had it like just not as extreme or? I think that, I just don't know if Chris realized how I was planning to lean into the silly. I think what he thought he wrote originally was more serious, but what I saw was like an underlying sense of humor in it that I think I brought out and the actors brought out. Hmm. And that's something that I think Chris came to realize was like, Joe like actually gets horror at a deeper level than I do <laughs> <laughs> and has been a guiding light ever since. He knows I know the genre kind of inside and out. And I think he knows and trusts that I'm going to steer us and push us into ways that will embrace the right tone for the horror. Well, the film Monsters was amazing and had a dystopian arc, much like your film Midnight Clear. Mm. What was your role in the production of this film? And I know you mentioned that Midnight Clear was kind of a reflection of the times, but was the dystopian subject matter a draw at all for you? Because I don't remember what time period this film was from. Yeah, Monsters was made in, I think, like 2014 or 2015. Okay. So it was a couple of years before. It was born out of an anthology that Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman had wanted to do. And there's a lot of other good stories in that anthology. And the thought was, well, if we make one, maybe maybe we can get interest around town and making more. Mm. Uh, didn't play out that way, but Monsters had an incredible run. I mean, it played at like every festival, I feel like, under the sun. I think it was like over 100 film festivals and wow. won so many awards. It was such a well-received short film. It was the first time I had ever been involved in a Kickstarter. Steve and Mike put like a real grassroots Kickstarter together and they raised way more money than I've ever had to direct any of my shorts. I think we ended up raising around 35 grand, mm -hmm. which was great, you know, and allowed him to make a movie that really reflected his vision. Monsters was, I think it's a coincidence that both have dystopian tendencies. You know, I was, uh, brought on to kind of just help them facilitate their vision. We had been developing a project together at my production company that I was a director of development at the time. And we had a really great experience developing that script. And I think it was just a extension of, hey, we want to do this. Do you want to be a part of it? And I'm big fans of those guys. And if they asked me tomorrow to do something with them, I would say yes. They just had a really big win. They have uh, the writers on the number one movie at the box office this weekend, Knock at the Cabin. So it's been amazing to watch their journey and have played a small part in it, you know? And Monsters was one of those steps. Okay. Well, I wanted to move into your feature films, the 
Opair Nightmare yeah. was a great psychological thriller. <laughs> Thank you. The film is about a young woman whose life is shattered when her fiance dies when they're hit by a drunk driver. And in order to get away from the town that holds the bad memory, she takes a job as a live-in nanny, otherwise known as an au pair, with a very eccentric couple and their daughter. So what was the beginning point of the writing of this story? Was it a scene, a concept, a character? It was an idea. There was a story I had been turned on to out of the UK about a nanny who wants to go be a live-in au pair for a family. And the wife started to suspect that the nanny was up to no good and that she'd been sent in from someone from her past. And so that kind of inkling, that conceptual inkling, is really where we drew from what became the au pair nightmare. That, too, is kind of structured with some pretty crazy twists. Hmm. Uh, ironically, most of them are reflective of the true story. So we kind of drew from the police reports we read on that story. And I had produced a movie, which I'm sure we'll talk about pretty soon, called Nightmare Cinema. And one of the producers on that movie worked in the lower-budget TV movie space. And they said, look, we like your short films. We like your writing. If you ever want to make one of these ultra low budget contained female thrillers, you know, pitches some ideas. And so I told them a little bit about this story that I just heard about and they really liked it and they asked us to write a pitch. And so Chris and I, you know, wrote up what our take was making the story our own and they were able to go get the financing to pay for the, the scripts and then we wrote it and then they got the financing to pay for the movie and we made it. It all happened within a year which was crazy. It was super fast. Yeah. Nice. And that was a Lifetime movie? Yeah, it was an independent film that was acquired by Lifetime. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So Lifetime, they acquire a lot of their movies because the volume that they release them at is insane. They put up new movies like every weekend, mm -hmm. you know? So some of them are in-house originals and some of them they acquire. And we happen to be one of those, you know, it was just one of those things where it sold right when the pandemic started and it came out kind of May 2020. So it was kind of the height of the pandemic. So it was like the perfect way to get the movie out mm. at that right time. You know, no one was going to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> it had one theatrical screening. We had a friends and family screening in Phoenix where my writing partner lives. And it was March 12th, 2020. Okay. And I said to the audience, I really appreciate you guys coming out because this is probably the last movie you're going to see in a movie theater for a long time. <laughs> and they all went like, ha, ha, ha. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Ugh. God, they have no idea what's coming. And of course, I was a ball of nerves because I was just thinking, God, I hope nobody in the theater gets sick. And thank God, as far as we know, no one did. But I think we were just just early enough in the spread that we were able to sneak this last screening in. But it was great to see it on the big screen. It looked great. It played really well with the audience. They had a ton of fun. So at least I have the one memory of it uh, <laughs> playing in the theater. <laughs> mm. So when was the lockdown? Was it like the end of March? It was March 13th. So literally one day later, Holy everything started shit. shutting down. Wow. Yeah. Yep. You got in right, right in by the skin of your teeth. Mm. 
by the skin of our teeth. Mm. So yeah, it was crazy. But like I said, I'm really grateful that we were able to do that screening. It was really fun actually to watch the movie with the Lifetime crowd because at that moment in 2020, you know, people had gotten used to watching things on their couch. And so there was this massive audience on Twitter who was literally live tweeting about the movie as it was playing. And it was so much fun to watch all the responses mm. kind of come in in real time, you know, mm. but it was, but it was a bummer because I never got to like have the big screening in LA with like all my friends, mm. and, you know, like we didn't get to do anything like that, yeah. which would have been great, but you know, just got to go make another one, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you being way more in tune to the flow of what's going on in the film world as far as movies, what is kind of going on with the theater-going experience? Is it dropping by the minute, or is it still staying afloat? Or No, it's, um, it's starting to inch its way back to life. Okay. Last year, Netflix had a really big stock hit, and when that happened, they've been calling it the great Netflix correction is kind mm -hmm. of what the entertainment journalists dubbed it. And that had a chilling effect across the entire streaming industry. And I think all of the studios and their stockholders have realized, oh, maybe it doesn't make sense to cut out this lucrative theatrical window mm. in the life of movies <laughs> in terms of like actually making revenue. Uh. So you're starting to see studios take movies that were originally designed for streamers and pivot towards different ways of monetizing them. I think like the biggest example was my friend Parker's movie Smile, oh. uh, which was originally supposed to go to Paramount Plus and they put it in the theaters and it made... $220 million, mm. you know? The other example that just happened was 80 for Brady, which is also a Paramount movie. That was supposed to go to Paramount Plus, and they decided to put it in the theaters, and it literally gave an M. Night Shyamalan movie a run for its money at the box office this weekend, mm. you know? So I think people are starting to go back to the theaters. I think now that the COVID numbers have finally dipped to a manageable place, people who were hesitant will probably start coming back. You know, I think... We've got to watch the numbers and make sure they don't rise back up quickly. But mm. I think if things stay around the levels they're at and continue to dip, I think you're going to see the opposite happen at the theaters. And I think that the numbers are going to go up. And I think you're going to see that the studios are going to reinvest back into that theatrical window more. Well, circling back to the au pair nightmare, yeah. the uh, doctor's wife, Alessandra, mm. is who I would label as the villain, at least the most culpable villain. Yeah. So without giving away the ending, were her actions Machiavellian or delusional? Or is that too much of a spoiler? <laughs> I, well, it might borderline on spoiler, but let me see if I can answer. I think, I think delusional, you know, but I think the surprising part of finding out about her delusions is I think as crazy as she is, we develop some empathy for those delusions, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't want to get into necessarily what those delusions are because I think that is the spoiler territory. But that was kind of the idea was, could we create a villain who very tragically believed in her delusions so much that she let them consume and destroy her entire life? Mm -hmm. 
And could this young woman who was dealing with her own tragedy see in Alessandra kind of a dark mirror where if she continued to be obsessed with this one thing from her past, could it destroy her life too? And it's really a story about one woman letting her past and her delusions consume her and another woman learning to deal with that past trauma and move on. Okay. Well, from what I read, The Au Pair Nightmare was your baby. You wrote it with Chris Lamont, and you also directed it. Yes. So what was the most difficult part of production that you had to deal with as the man in charge of that film? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there was two things that we were consistently dealing with while we were making that movie. The first was just the limits of the production realities. Uh, It was a very low budget movie. Like, only a few hundred thousand dollars. And we had to shoot the movie in 14 days, which was, and if you know anything about movie production, is, is not a lot of time. Uh-huh. So the fact that the movie, I think, looks and sounds and plays and the performances are as, as strong as they are is a testament to our cast and crew. And what I think was a fun script that played on the domestic thriller tropes that you would expect from a lifetime movie and took them in kind of different ways. Mm. You know, I think the other thing that was a little bit of a challenge was just that like the producers needed it to really fall into that domestic thriller window for their sales purposes. And so there was creatively always a lot of conversations about, you know, just make sure it's not too scary. You know, <laughs> we, we want women who could be washing this with a glass of Pinot Grigio in their laundry on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, and because I had done a bunch of horror shorts and, you know, had gotten some notoriety for my horror writing on things like The Bloodless by that point and had just produced Nightmare Cinema with them, I feel like they were constantly chasing me around to be like, is that too scary? Is that too scary? Is that too scary? (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know how to tell you that like, I know what we're making. Like I know we're making a Hitchcockian thriller. We're not, you know, uh, yeah. (laughs) but you know, like I think one of the most heartbreaking changes in post was there's a moment where Taylor gets injected with a drug and we had a great shot where it was an extreme close up on the needle Mm. and it shifted focus to her eyes Mm -hmm. and that was deemed quote unquote too scary so you know it was little things like that that were kind of you know some creative directing flourishes that got cut in the producer's edit that i think will forever haunt me when i think about them (laughs) (laughs) i won't bother like anyone else who watches it you know so it's so. just a, a little too visceral, like the needle going through the neck slowly or yeah, we never even never even shot that. It was literally just the terror in her eyes oh. of the needle okay. was deemed too intense. Hmm. And no, we never showed any kind of penetration or anything like that. So one of the producers had a rule which was like, if it scares my mom, it's too scary. Oh, Jesus. Uh, and so that was I think that was a moment that scared his mom. So uh, <laughs> uh, that was the battle on that one, I think. So it was just like time management and the resource management was a continual challenge during production. And then I think the creative challenges were really just like they really made sure I never got to 
hit the gas on anything too, too much, you know? Mm. Uh, so we, we pushed it where we could and I'm really happy with those moments. But, you know, if I could have gone unleashed, there's certainly a couple moments I might have dialed things up a little bit more. Yeah. Well, great movie. Enjoyed it. Thank you. It is really, it's a fun picture. And I'm really proud of what we accomplished, given some of the creative and logistical constraints. Mm-hmm. Well, you've alluded to it a few times. You were a producer on Nightmare Cinema, which was great. I can't, I'm trying <laughs> to think of what my favorite part was. Maybe, maybe it was the final, uh, I guess, what would you call it? Story? The one with the boy in the hospital? Yeah, where, well, I'd be giving oh. away spoilers if I told you my favorite part, but yeah, <laughs> maybe that possibly Mick, was. Mick would, uh, Mick would love to hear that. I will pass that along. It's, you know, I hate when people try to ask me what my favorite segment is. If I, I'm cutting off a question of yours, I'm sorry. But, no, no. But because it's like trying to choose a baby, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you, those five stories are my kids and like, how do you pick one over the others, you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, Top Down Nightmare Cinema was an incredible experience. It's a horror anthology. Mm -hmm. So even though the one that I tried to do with Steve and Mike years before that Monsters was born out of, I finally did get to do my anthology movie and I got to do it with kind of one of the kings of anthology horror movies, Mick Garris, who got his start on Amazing Stories and has been a part of Tales from the Crypts and his baby Masters of Horror in the mid-2000s. And this was kind of intended to be a spiritual successor to Masters of Horror since it never truly got a season three. Hmm. Okay. Which elements of production were you involved with on that one? Every one of them. Uh, I was literally in a meeting with Mick where he pitched me the idea. Mm -hmm. We went out and found financing for the script and that company and I went out and we found financing for the movie. And then I was involved in prep. I was involved in production. I was involved in posts. I was involved in the release and the festival run. And yeah, it was really like a soup to nuts producing experience for me, which is why I'm a capital P producer on the movie. Nice. Uh, Yeah. Well, tell me about your screenplay for the movie Hard Kill. How did that come about and what caused such a divergence from horror into action? You know, I don't think like philosophically action movies and horror movies are that different. Mm -hmm. And that might sound kind of strange at first, but you know, if you think about Peter Jackson, Sam Raimi, they've all kind of pivoted towards action movies. And I do think that action movies at their fundamental levels all have elements of thriller moments. Mm -hmm. Right. And those to me are kind of born out of like horrific ideas, right? Like horror teaches you how to do action on a really, really tight budget. Mm. You still have to be able to set up suspense and thrills and surprises and action and physical effects and practical effects and visual effects. And I feel like all of the kind of ingredients of an action movie, they're in horror. So to me, they're not that far apart, even though they might seem like they would be from the outside in, Mm. you know? So I've always loved action movies and I've always wanted to right in that space. It was an interesting moment in my career because we had just signed with our agency, the Gersh agency. They had a script 
that we had written that they were really excited about, which was a horror script called Soulmates. Mm. Uh, and it went on to be our first bloodless script and was our first sale as writers. I think off the back of that, they saw the opportunity to sell Chris and I as exciting voices in horror. And I was like, Hey, I also have this action script. What do you, what do you think of this? <laughs> and they were like, well, we want to sell you as horror people, not action people. So like, we're going to channel our efforts into this one. And so the original script for hard kill, which was called open source went into limbo. And one of the guys who came up with the idea for the original script, he happened to know someone who worked at the production company Emmett Furlow Oasis and randomly saw the principal of Emmett Furlow, Randall Emmett, at a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Arizona, which is <laughs> the fucking randomest thing in the world. <laughs> Hopefully I can say the F. Oh, yeah. Uh, fly. And, <laughs> and he went up to him and said, hey, I went to high school with one of your employees and I've been developing an action project. And he said, great, send it to us. And so he did. And they were the ones who ended up picking it up. So it was kind of this like orphan spec that my reps weren't going to do anything with, at least for the immediate future. And they came in and, you know, rescued it, so mm -hmm. to speak. It was a much bigger movie originally. It had a lot more science fiction elements, explored a lot more interesting political themes I felt, and we got a draft that everyone was really happy with. And while I was in the middle of editing The Op-Air Nightmare in 2019, they basically said, hey, we've got to strip mine this thing because we don't have the money to make the movie the way the script hmm. reads. And we don't have the money to do the sci-fi elements. And can you rejigger this thing for us? We did a pass, one pass, because we had one step in our deal left, where we turned it into, in my mind, it went from being a story with a lot of scope to what I would call a tower defense type of movie, kind of like an assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. You know? So it really shifted into something different. And they were really happy with what we did. And they went and made that movie. The director did some subsequent rewriting on it and, you know, kind of made the movie become what they needed it to be. And from there, you know, I kind of can't speak to <laughs> the creative because it wasn't my baby anymore. Mm. You know, we'd sold it off and they went and they did what they were going to do with it. So it was an interesting experience. It was my first time kind of having the writing taken out of my hands and putting it in, into someone else's and kind of losing, I think, the the thread of what we had originally intended the movie to be and watching it get turned into really a completely different thing, mm. which happens to screenwriters sometimes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So keeping with the focus on your feature films, yeah. you and Chris Lamont are the writers for The Last Will and Testament of Charles Abernathy, which it looks like the name was changed to The Inheritance. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. That is correct. That was our third Bloodless script. And we had that movie go into production in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And Alejandro Bouguez, who did one of the most fun segments in Nightmare Cinema, the spider segment, 
he directed it, and I think he did a really terrific job with it. The movie's very fun. Mm-hmm. And unlike some of our other writing credits, stayed very true to the original screenplay, which I was very happy for. Well, I wanted to get into the writing process. Yeah, let's do it. So I'm admitting a lot of ignorance here. (laughs) I know there's a standardized format for a screenplay. Does that format change with short films versus feature length films? And how did you learn the craft of screenwriting? That's a great question. I'm sure Arizona State would love to tell you that they taught me the craft of screenwriting. (laughs) Maybe in so much that I was exposed to screenplays there, you could say yes. Uh. Honestly, I learned the craft of screenplay writing by reading screenplays. When I first moved out to Los Angeles, well, a half step back, Mm -hmm. I have two degrees, one in film and one in journalism. So I learned how to write from my journalism degree. You know, I learned how to be succinct to the point and with a little bit of flair from that educational background. Screenplays are similar. You know, they're not novels. You can't kind of go off in these lugubrious tangents and, <laughs> and meander and, you know, get into characters' heads. It all has to be translatable to the screen and you want to keep them at a certain page length. So it pays to be kind of punchy and short and economical with the writing. So all those journalism skills that I had, I felt translated really nicely into screenwriting once I really started to do it. But I think it was when I came out to LA and I started working at my development job, there was a point in time where I was reading two screenplays a day, good ones, bad ones, new writers, established writers, has-been writers. (laughs) (laughs) And I think just consuming that high volume of material taught me what I liked to see in a script and kind of taught me how to more effectively communicate those ideas. To answer your question about shorts versus features, we kind of talked a little bit about shorts already and kind of my philosophy for them. The writing on the page in a short and a feature can be indistinguishable. Mm. The structures are very different because obviously you can't take a feature-length structure where you show a character's growth over a journey Mm -hmm. and jam it into eight to 10 pages. It's just impossible to do that same thing. So Mm -hmm. like I said, it's either you do a slice of life point of view into that character or my go-to has always been kind of those punchline structures. But features really, you know, you have to take a character and the audience on an emotional journey. When we were talking about the au pair nightmare earlier, you know, I mentioned it's about one woman learning to deal with the trauma of her past by confronting a woman who was consumed by the trauma of her past, right? And that's an emotional journey. You could also say that the movie is about a woman who goes to be a nanny for a crazy family, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not the emotional journey. That's the plot, Mm. right? The emotional journey is Taylor learning to overcome those nightmares of her past, right? So to me, that's kind of the stark difference between the two is you have to be able to figure out not just like what is a good concept, what is a good plot, but how do you take a character on an emotional journey through those things and have them change from the beginning of the movie to the end? Okay. 
Well, when you write a screenplay for a movie like Hard Kill, which there's a lot of highly choreographed fight scenes. Sure. How does that come into play? Are you just like giving broad strokes in a screenplay or are you getting real detailed? It depends, which I think is like an annoying answer, but I'll try to, <laughs> I'll try to expand on that. At the end of the day, when you're writing a feature length script that is going to be read by executives who are probably going home for the weekend with three to five other scripts, hmm. the goal is to keep them reading, right? Hmm. Uh, and set pieces are a thing where you can stall out the read really easily if it gets too granular, mm. right? If I'm like, he punches, he kicks, she ducks, he dies. He <laughs> d- like becomes, it's not a fun thing to read anymore, right? Mm. But if you can find a way to write the set pieces through the characters less, like let's say, for example, a character has his leg injured before he walks into a fight scene, and you track how that injury impacts that entire fight scene, suddenly I'm compelled and interested and it feels different and feels fresh. Mm. And it's like, oh, like he trips over this thing because he doesn't have a good control over his leg or the other guy jams his finger into the wound. and You know what I mean? Like mm. suddenly it doesn't feel quite as list-like mm. as this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. So to me, the best set pieces, the best fight scenes, they tend to kind of go in and out of the micro and the macro of the action. Mm. You know, like, what are the action beats that matter for the story and the characters? Expand on those. And then if there's a place where you want them to punch each other a lot, a flurry of punches (laughs) (laughs) can can really get across that idea pretty Uh succinctly. So you don't want it to derail the read, but you also want it to have enough style and fun that it doesn't just read like a generic action scene either. Hmm. You know, it's kind of a mix of both. So kind of like an interesting way to write the end scene of Scarface would be Tony Montana is laying waste with a machine gun from the balcony while the head hitman slowly creeps up behind with a shotgun. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to he shoots this person, he shoots that person, mm-hmm. he shoots this person, he shoots that person, right? Yeah. It's more about like digging into the specific story beats that you need and trust that the director and the stunt choreographers are going to come up with cool shit for the rest, you know? <laughs> Definitely. Well, you already alluded to it because one of my questions was going to be i interview a lot of novelists and they say the best way to become a great novelist is to read novels you mentioned that you read a lot of screenplays what are some examples that you think are just masterpieces there's two screenplays i can think of in my mind that stand out as like screenplays that change my perspective on things one is michael clayton the screenplay for the movie michael clayton Tony Gilroy is an incredible writer and it is a masterwork of just screenplay structure, drama, character, and voice. That's one I would definitely recommend people seek out. The other one I distinctly remember really early in my career on the development side of things 
reading a screenplay that was on the blacklist, which is the best scripts at the end of the year that are voted on. It was called Your Bridesmaid is a Bitch, uh, <laughs> by, by Brian Duffield, who has gone on to, to quite a fun run as a screenwriter and also a producer who's got Cocaine Bear coming up, which I can't wait to see. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but there is a moment early in the script where Brian describes this character, this like French asshole. And like it literally cuts to it's like the French asshole and he has this like monologue and he's smoking a cigarette. And mm. anyway, it taught me what voice was. Mm. It taught me what like you can have a personality with your screenplays. It doesn't just have to be disappear into what you think the movie needs to be. You can talk to the reader. You can guide them through what they need to feel moments in a screenplay. And, you know, Brian wasn't the first person to invent this. This, like, dates back decades. Shane Black probably is the person who is most known for doing this. And I think it's just offshoots of that. For example, in Lethal Weapon, the script for Lethal Weapon, Shane Black wrote something like Beverly Hills Mansion, like the kind I'll buy when this movie is a big hit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But these little things that you throw in, these moments of voice, these moments of talking to the reader, they should be used sparingly because you don't want to get annoying and overdo it just mm. like anything. It should be a spice, you know, <laughs> uh, layered on top of what you're baking. Mm. But I think it shows that there is an authorial voice behind what you're reading. And you tend to know that maybe you're in better hands because they feel so confident in their craft that they can bend the rules a little bit, mm -hmm. you know? So those are kind of two that really stand out in my mind. Michael Clayton and Your Bridesmaids is a Bitch uh, <laughs> that I kind of distinctly remember the axis of the earth shifting for me in terms of screenwriting. Mm. Well, as far as your writing process, can you tell me about Chris Lamont and how you joined forces with him as a writing partner? Yeah, yeah, of course. So Chris was the youngest faculty member at the very nascent Arizona State Film School when I was going through it. I was in the, I think it was, I graduated like the third class or something like that. Mm -hmm. I was a part of a film club brainstorming group where we kind of dreamed up what we would want the film program to be and we petitioned and got one started. So like it didn't exist before I went to ASU and, and Chris was part of that first wave of faculty there. And so I took a 101 class with him and I made a short film and I was so confident in my abilities. I like finished it early and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he was like, well, let me see it. And he likes to say he ripped it apart, but, uh, and I put that in big air quotes. He gave me some really good notes and gave me some really good feedback. And he made what was, I think, already a strong student short even better to the point where it got in a film festival. And it was my first stab at doing a short film in college, you know? So like that doesn't happen that much, right? So, yeah. so I attributed some of that to his feedback. And even though I never had another class with him again, I would take my subsequent short films to him and get feedback from him. And I was always making shorts that were a little bit of cut above what everyone else was doing. And I do attribute that to me kind of submitting to the notes process and getting feedback from people and, and trying to 
tune the shorts to that. Mm. Chris was one of those voices that was always constant there. When I graduated, he was line producing a feature film, a low budget, very low budget feature film <laughs> in Arizona. And he got me an interview to be the assistant to the director on that movie. And so I like to joke that that's the movie where I learned how not to make movies. Uh, <laughs> but Chris and I were, our relationship was really solidified on that picture because it was such a hard movie to make. And relationships that are born in fire tend to last forever. Mm. So when we were done, I knew that LA was going to come calling eventually. And, you know, I was going to have to get out there if I wanted to further my career. And so I was going to make a calling card short film. And we had this big script and it was too long and it was too complicated and it had too many visual and practical effects. And there was never a way we were ever going to be able to make this on a $5,000 budget. And so he said, you're not going to be able to make this the way you want to make it. Why don't you make this instead? And he gave me the script for takeout. And that was our first collaboration. Okay. And, you know, obviously, like you said, it turned out well, played at a bunch of festivals, won some awards. And ultimately, that short and peeping Tom were the ones who got the attention of the CEO I was working for at the time, the producer of X-Men and Wild Wild West. And he watched both shorts and, and he gave me a job. Those shorts got my foot out in LA. And, you know, Chris and I just kept creating together, you know? While I was doing kind of my early development side of things when I was assistant and a creative exec and director of development, while I was reading tons of scripts, Chris and I were quietly writing features and pilots together. Mm. And in 2014, we collaborated on a pilot with another writer named Claire Weaver called Exorcist Incorporated. And that got set up with Will Smith's company. Mm. Um, that's when I think he and I realized like, we should be putting more time and effort into doing what I came out to LA to do, which was write and direct mm. and a little less on me just trying to get a foothold in a day-to-day -day executive job. Mm. And 2015, I made the pivot. Very nice. Well, I wanted to move on to your directorial process. Sure. So I really like auteurs that write and direct, which you've done a lot of. And there was a short film called Movie Screening Security Guards that you <laughs> directed but did not write. Did you feel a disconnect from not being part of the writing process? And do you prefer to write and direct versus just one or the other? You know, I think that um, I've always found, even when I was a development executive and I was helping other writers and directors shape you know, their ideas in the movies, I've always found even that being helping other people achieve their creative visions has been creatively satisfying for me. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a little bit of a outside looking in misconception. You know, I know the idea that like the director has the final say in movies. When I am looking at directing things that I did not write, usually, and this was the case in movie screening security guards, I'm still involved in the development of the script. Mm -hmm. So even though I might not be the one sitting down and hammering out the final draft document, I'm giving notes, I'm giving ideas, I'm pitching things, you know, 
Moose Cream Security Guards was based on my idea because at the time I was writing movie reviews for the journalism program at ASU. And I would go to all these screenings and anti-piracy things. There'd be these <laughs> guys in suits with night vision goggles and making sure no one was recording the movie. And uh, I thought that was so funny. So we made like a little mock doc short film about it. And Jen Winterbotham, a friend of mine from school, who's a really talented writer and wish she would do it more, she penned the script and it was very, very funny. Mm. So it was mostly just me cheering her on and saying, this is great. You know, what if we went this way or that way or tweak this or that? So I was still very involved in the creative process. And there's one thing in particular right now that I'm eyeing to direct that another writer who I'm a big fan of, Tracy Beebe, she kind of took an idea that I had and has fleshed out in a script. And I'm very excited about it. It's a really cool kind of twist on a slasher movie. And, you know, we're talking at the conceptual stage, talking about characters and themes and ideas. And then granularly, I'm, what if we tweak this line? Or what if we have this happen or this bit of blocking? You know, so even though I'm directing someone else's scripts, I'm still very much involved in the development and shape of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's just natural function of also being a writer too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've read different things. Is it just kind of up to the director how much input they have into the process? Like, are you technically as a director supposed to be in on the script and the editing and the casting and all that kind of, you know, not real deep. Oh but, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, a film director should be involved in every stage of the process. I think they're going to have input in conjunction with the studio and the financiers and the producers about casting. Mm. They're going to lead the charge and lead the cast and crew during production. They're going to be working with the editor day in and day out to shape the movie and post. Mm. Unless something goes wrong, you know, unless the studio or the financiers become overbearing and kick the director out of the edit room or something like that, like which happens. Mm. And it probably happens more often than people realize. Unless those things happen, the director is involved in shaping every step of the way. Now, writers do kind of get iced out of the process. A lot of times filmmakers and producers say, thank you very much. We'll take your script from here. You know, mm -hmm. I personally, I think as a writer who has been iced out of the process mm. on uh, a couple of my pictures, I want the writers to be involved. I want their input on what I'm doing or want to do with the scripts. I want them involved as, you know, we find locations and reshape the script. I want them to weigh in on casting ideas. I want them to be a part of the process because so much of this was born out of their brain that why would you not include that resource? I think I'm humble enough as a director, I hope, to... to <laughs> Not say that my ideas are always the best ideas. You know, I want to listen to all the people around me. Mm -hmm. And I think that even goes all the way back to, like I said, with me and Chris when we first started working together. So having been in the position where I ultimately didn't have a say over how my scripts were rewritten for production and who was cast and how they were edited and seeing some of the end results, I don't necessarily think that uh, <laughs> including the writers is going to harm the pictures at the end of the day. Well, from what I see on your social media, it looks like you have a lot of fun with the creative process and film production. I imagine producing and directing can be stressful. How do you keep the process flowing, but keep everyone loose and working together? 
Um, I tend to try to bring a sense of humor mm. to these proceedings. You know, there's a lot of people around town who treat and act like this is brain surgery or rocket science and it's life <laughs> or death. And it's not, you know, we're, we're, we're making movies, we're playing pretend. And I try to, to remember that. I try not to let my ego get in the way. I'm not saying that it hasn't happened, mm. but, but, <laughs> but I try. I tend to be someone who I will be the most loyal, nicest person I can possibly be until I feel like you have treaded on me in some way. And then things can get prickly. Mm. But, uh, but I try to find people that I'm excited about working with and give them the benefit of the doubts. And that hasn't always worked out the way I wanted it to. I think just like in life, mm. you know, but I always go in with the best intentions. And I think that that attitude has, for the most part, led me and the people I'm closest with to want to continue working together and work together on multiple things and, you know, ultimately can bear some great creative fruit. Mm. So we spoke about directors having their hands in everything. How fast does the technology involved with filmmaking change and how much of that does a director have to follow and adapt to? You know, it's been interesting because I kind of came into directing, like, for example, Takeout was done on the first iteration of the red camera, mm. which has kind of changed digital cinema. And every time I feel like I'm using like some new high end version of the red or the Ari Alexa or whatever, the reality is there are people who you're going to be working with who specialize in those things, mm. who know the differences between the different red cameras and the Aries and, you know, which one can push blacks more and which one's better for color and what lenses will help get you the right shapes and sizes. And my opinion is, as a director, you should be focused on the characters and the story and finding a way to clearly communicate those things and trust the people around you to help you make the best decisions about whether uh, you should be using a crane or a steady cam or, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you need to have an opinion on those things. I think you need to have ideas about those things. I think you need to have a basic understanding of some of the tools of cinema. I don't think you should just show up and be like, tell me what to do. Right. Mm -hmm. But the practical realities of filmmaking, the budget, the schedule, sometimes that will determine whether uh, you have time for a steady cam or if you're going handheld, mm -hmm. you know, and you have to be in a position where you can make the best creative choice. Luckily, all the really complicated stuff, motion capture, CG, VFX, that kind of stuff, there are experts who can help you with that. Mm. But the basic tools of cinema, a camera, lenses, lights, a crane, a dolly, mm. those have been pretty constant for a hundred years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so as long as you kind of understand those things, I'm not going to go in and tell a stunt person the best way to do a stunt. I want them to help me shape what my idea is in my head and make it practical reality. Mm. You know? And I think the same is true with kind of the advancing technology. Yeah. Well, do you have any influences when it comes to directing? And if so, who are they? And was any particular influence the impetus for making you want to be a director in the first place? 
Well, it all goes back to Steven Spielberg. This is probably his fault. Uh, <laughs> Damn him. Damn him. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's the greatest filmmaking mind of our generation. And, you know, growing up with his movies, like, how could he not be? There's a lot of, lot of filmmakers who have influenced me over the years. I mean, I would say John Carpenter is probably a close second. And then it's Ridley Scott, David Fincher, Joe Dante, Sam Raimi, mm. Peter Jackson. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I love cinema. I'm a student of cinema. Mm. Alfred Hitchcock. It's hard for me to quantify all the little details and nuances that each movie has kind of picked up and taught along the way. Like a movie I reference all the time, even when we were making The Opera Nightmare, just because I think the performances are so authentic is Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. Mm. Tim Burton, big influence too. You know, so like I've got all these little um, pieces of all these filmmakers and all their movies that kind of inspire me and keep my love of cinema alive. So for me, I don't know. I can't say other than Spielberg, you know, definitively, I couldn't necessarily say there's like, one filmmaker that I'm necessarily trying to emulate. I'm trying to find my own voice through what I'm doing and through kind of the culmination of all these different influences. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the life of Joe Russo like outside of film? Well, uh, <laughs> I think there's, there's a lot of assumptions that people make from social media. No, oh. I hang out with my dog a lot and eat a lot of pizza. Um, <laughs> oh, the pizza you have on your feed is just, God damn it. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I grew up in Connecticut and Connecticut has some of the best pizza in the world. Mm. So it's been ingrained and instilled in me, you know, since a young age. And LA, it's weirdly, I think, like one of the best food cultures in the world. There's so many options and there's so many great places. And really in the last like 10 years, there's been a real boom in pizza here. All different styles, all different, you know, it's eclectic. It's not like, oh, New York style or Chicago style or Detroit style. We have all of those things. So during the pandemic, I started posting the photos of the pizza I was eating. And it's become a little bit of a joke at this point. <laughs> I do eat more than, than pizza. Uh, <laughs> but it sure would look like from my... Uh, Social media, that is literally what I live on. Um, <laughs> but uh, I had sushi last night. <laughs> yeah. Sushi. Mm. So, there's great sushi out here, too. I just don't post photos of it as much. Living in Los Angeles, it is such a movie town. Mm. And being in the entertainment industry, you make so many friends who love movies, too, that... Yeah, it's your work, but it's also kind of defines a lot of your life too. You know, like one of our favorite things to do during the summer is at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, they have outdoor movie screenings where they project movies. It's almost like a concert. Like instead of seeing your favorite band, you're going to see one of your favorite movies that you love mm -hmm. with thousands of people. We all picnic and it's like a huge, huge night, you know? Mm -hmm. So like movies, it's like I can't get away from them. Uh, <laughs> But my wife doesn't work in the industry for her day job, even though I feel like her second job is making sure that my career stays on track. But <laughs> it's nice to be able to have someone who is not full-time in the industry to talk to. I do also post a lot of photos of my dog. Uh, <laughs> very dog-obsessed as well. 
I'm a news junkie, unfortunately. I think that's, that's something that consumes. And then probably one of the things that people, I don't post about it as much, but I'm a big pro wrestling fan. Mm. Always have been, probably always will be. Mm. I'm a big comic book reader. So I have my hobbies. I love video games, always have since I was a kid. Wish I had more time to play them. I've got a PS5 that I wish I could use more. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I've got my, I got my interest outside of movies too, but, uh, it is so all consuming here that sometimes it's hard to carve out time for the other things. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, it has been a pleasure talking with you. You too, Vince. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. As we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers know about? Uh, you can find me on the social medias. That's a good place to kind of stay up to date about what I'm doing, what I'm up to. You can find me at Joe Russo tweets on Twitter and at Joe Russo Graham on Instagram. And you can also catch me almost every other week on the postmortem with Nick Garris podcast and once a month on another podcast I produce with a friend called Hollywood Hangout, mm. where we tend to talk about movies and how the industry is reshaped by the movies that have just come out. So it's kind of a fun little rabbit hole to go down with us. So you can find me on those things. All right. Nice. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Joe, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>